If walls could talk, we'll find they do so in different ways. Imagine we're standing at the base of the towering walls of what remains of the Scranton Iron Furnaces. What might these walls say about the early history of the region? They might talk about the dream of William Henry, who formed a business partnership with Selden Scranton, George Scranton, and Sanford Grant to raise the capital needed to establish a coal-fueled blast furnace here in the Lackawanna Valley. That from AbandonedOnline.net. The larger dream was the American dream, the dream of seeking prosperity and upward social mobility. Those massive walls speak as well of the immigrants who came to the Lackawanna Valley to work in the iron industry and the mines and with their own dreams of a better life for themselves and their families. So just think of the humming those blast furnace walls will do when the actors of the Scranton Shakespeare Festival present ragtime with the furnace as a backdrop. We're reminded the show opens with an expositional song and dance number, a sort of musical table of contents. Each racial or ethnic group explains its place in society and introduces all the primary characters in the process. The musical unfolds with various songs that chronicle historical events, a bit about vaudeville performer Evelyn Nesbitt, and the crime of the century, a dance number about Henry Ford's Model T assembly line, Interwoven throughout the historical pastiche, African-American ragtime musician Colehouse Walker Jr. romantically pursues the mother of his child and dreams of the future they can have together. Sarah, it must be true. A country that lets a man like me own a car, raise a child, build a life with you. She similarly searches for a new life. Look at my daughter, God. Why have you brought us here? How can I feed her? or clothe or protect her here. Where's the America we were supposed to get? An upper-class white family awakens to the ways in which the world is stacked in their favor. That from the article Ragtime America on Stage by Lauren Harris in May 2019. whisper to us of mystery as they evoke Elsinore, the monumental castle that is the setting for Shakespeare's Hamlet. So whispering rather than speaking, the walls may be solid as rock, but are the characters dreaming when they see a ghost? And what about this juxtaposition between the monumental solid walls of the blast furnaces already there at the site? The audiences can actually touch the stones, and the scene in A Midsummer Night's Dream with the mechanicals makes us think about walls and solidity and dreams and illusion. 
the mechanical's deliberation in Act Three about how to bring in the moonlight and the wall required by their play articulate the representational range of the body as Shakespearean performance medium. These two hard things which remain to be planned as Quince and his company meet to rehearse seem to mark out the most distant extremes on the wide spectrum of things as a dramatist might wish to represent on stage. Put in theoretical terms, the problem of representing moonlight is the problem of representing the intangible in drama, of bringing to the stage that which may be charged with significance and influence, but which has no palpable form. Such things are representable and perceivable, like moonlight itself, only with the aid of a mediator that is as substantial as the heavenly body of the moon. The problem that bringing in a wall invokes, on the other hand, is the problem of bringing to the theatrical world that which is nothing but palpable substance and which may be found everywhere outside the world of the theater. The mechanicals overcome both of these problems fairly quickly. During the discussion about how to stage Moonlight, for instance, both Snout and Bottom come forward as proponents of a representation that is hardly representational at all. They suggest leaving a window open and letting real moonlight shine in on the stage. With a terse eye, Quince acknowledges the possibility that their plan might work, but he quickly dismisses it and offers the following alternative. Or else one must come in with a bush of thorns and a lantern, and he says he comes to present a person of moonshine. Imitating Quince's directorial pronouncements about moonlight, Bottom, when confronted with the problem of bringing in a wall, declares some man or other must present wall and let him have some loam or some rough cast about him to signify wall and let him hold his fingers thus and through that cranny shall Pyramus and Thisbe whisper. These solutions to the problems of staging moonlight and a wall signal the mechanical's affinity for an excessively literal method of dramatic representation as well as their misunderstanding of the imaginative powers of their audience. Words of Murray Plus in College Literature, Volume 19. And then, of course, there is Puck's final speech. If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme no more yielding but a dream. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And, as I am an honest Puck, if we have unearned luck now to escape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long, else the puck a liar call. So good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. So was it a dream, or wasn't it? We're invited to enter the dream space that the Scranton Shakespeare Festival will create at the Scranton Iron Furnaces beginning June 30th. The 10th anniversary season will unfold right there at that site, and there'll be ghosts and dreams and walls and more. Michael Bradshaw Flynn had an idea. It was 2011 when he 
conceived the idea to organize a free public performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream in Scranton's historic Mayog Park. Nearly 1,000 people made their way to the park to enjoy an afternoon of theater, and as we'll hear, the rest is history. And we had a chance to speak with Michael Bradshaw Flynn, founder and artistic director of the Scranton Shakespeare Festival, about the 10th anniversary season and how they got to this point. The last season, we made the decision pretty early on that it wasn't looking like we were going to have a live season. And I'm a pretty reckless optimist, as I like to say. And even I knew pretty early March that we weren't going to be able to do a live theatrical season. But that also said, I felt an obligation to our audiences that, especially in these dark times when people are going to be forced to undergo isolation and alienation, unlike we've experienced in a hundred years, that as artists, we have even more of an obligation to bring people together, to entertain and provide catharsis. And so I knew that I wanted to do something. And frankly, we couldn't afford to stream or film. And at that point, people weren't quite even doing that yet with Hollywood budgets. So I thought to myself, why don't we do radio plays? And it was, I was chopping up something on the cutting board and it came to me because I just wasn't ready to make the cancellation video. We were preparing an April Happy Birthday Shakespeare video with masks that was going to be filmed remotely. But I knew that I wanted to come out very soon and make an announcement of some sort. And so we had to shift our season a little bit. The theme of season nine last year was actually going to be home. And again, I don't know how many people really experience or, or realize that we have season themes, but last season's was home. And when we were creating it, you know, we had The Wizard of Oz. We had The Merry Wives of Windsor. We had Billy Elliot. These were the shows we wanted to slate because we thought they'd be really exciting and celebrations of, you know, a literal home as well as Merry Wives of Windsor, which is very much about home. Henry Fourth, which is very much about the domestic family and a family drama. But we didn't realize that people were going to be experiencing the seasons within the comforts of their home. And so the, the season had to shake up a little bit because at this time, when we were reaching out to the theatrical providers of these materials, they didn't even know, can we offer radio rights? Can we offer any of this stuff? So we had to go back to the Pirates of Penzance, a family favorite operetta. We recorded that. And all of this is still available on our website, actually. So if you're looking for a little radio play and you can't join us this season, which would be a shame, you can go and enjoy last season, which is kind of wonderful because it's evergreen material, which is very not what theater is. Theater is very much in the moment of the moment. You can see the spit from the actors. You can hear the trees rustling if we're outdoors, whereas last season it's in a time capsule. So that's how we coped. And, you know, I have to say... I've got to pat ourselves on the back a little bit because so many people with grant foundations were really impressed that we pivoted quite early. You know, we made this decision before late April, mid-April, we were ready to start doing something. And none of our team had any real experience in broadcasting and radio. So we were looking at all of these different apps and how do we record and can we record dialogue on an iPhone and it was it was a real challenge but in some ways it was great because that year also allowed us to turn the examination inward and reflect a little bit on how we operate as an organization so normally when we're on the ground we are worrying about transportation of actors we're worrying about this person gets sick so we have to run them here we're worrying about picking up printing we're worrying about this that or the other thing and 
last year we were able to finally say, okay, well, we don't have to worry about boots on the ground so much. We just have to hang up posters, let people know what we're doing, and we can start focusing on some of the organizational work, some of the board creative relations, and that proved to be quite fruitful for this 10th season coming up. We've, we were able to lay some really helpful groundwork and strengthen some of those muscles that we don't have enough time to focus our attention on when we're on the ground. So that has been a bit of a, a positive from so much negative. Was there ever a moment when you or all of you together said, you know, Shakespeare had to go through this? Yes. I mean, so many people were drawing that comparison. Well, he wrote Lear in in a pandemic and a plague. And so, so many people were, what was your Lear? So we did go through that. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily in the themes of the works that we, that, that, that's the great thing about Shakespeare. He explores so many different themes and so many psychological states in the canon of his work. But the works that we had programmed weren't necessarily suited to that. And frankly, I think if we did Lear during that time, we would all be very, very dreary and, and upset. But we did think about that. I mean, there's a lot of creativity to be had when there's nowhere to go, when all you have is your thoughts and you look at a rose and, you know, a rose by any other name would be just as sweet. And you have to start writing down ideas and journaling. So I think, I mean, I've learned to cook during this time, which I'm not sure how that's going to, to help my uh, direction and my producing. But I think in some ways it will. I, I read right at the beginning of the of the pandemic that there was a bit of a correlation between the transcendentalists, the greatest things with with Emerson and Thoreau. Thoreau. You know, they had expressed that a lot of times these beautiful transcendental moments happen after periods of sustained grief. And so I'm optimistic that, you know, perhaps people who normally might not be interested in connecting or even myself, I was like, you know, all of those times where I was just too tired after work and didn't want to go out. I, I'm looking back on my life and saying, you know, when things open up, I'm going to do them. I'm going to go out and I don't care what I'm going to see. I don't care what I'm going to hear. I just want to take advantage of this brief time we have here. And so I think it's shifted perspectives. But as far as themes go, we we did stray slightly from them in year nine. But it looks like with what we're programming this season, you know, a lot of those themes are very, very prevalent. Do you want to start with how you chose the Shakespeare because Shakespeare is in your name? Sure. Yes. I mean, that's very important. I always sort of knew that, you know, on these landmark years, season five, we did the Scottish play. I think I'm allowed to say it in here. You are you because you're not on the stage. Okay, yet. because I'm not on the stage. We did Macbeth as kind of a landmark season. And I knew, I felt very strongly that I didn't want to touch Hamlet until we earned it. That might be in my head a little bit because in some ways it's such a great play you know, if you've got talent and add a little bit of water, it works. But I just felt as though I would rather do Troilus and Cressida and Richard before we got to this landmark piece. And so year 10, I always knew we wanted to do Hamlet. So then when you know that you're programming that, you've got two options. You can either say, okay, that's the Whopper, and we can fill it all in with filling. But I, of course, took the, the road less traveled. And I said, no, I need things to stand up to this piece. So it's not a matter of Okay, well, Hamlet's the big one. I, I knew that I wanted to accompany this work with other very strong shows. And they all started falling into place. But meanwhile, 
I was thinking, okay, so what is our theme going to be? We've just sort of lived through so much death and sickness and isolation and alienation. And so I was sort of thinking quite a bit about Hamlet and something, a way into this work, because I will be directing it, is that I think there's a really great ghost story here. And I don't think that's always the focus. I think we kind of look around that. But I think especially in the early 1600s, that would have been quite evocative. And so the spiritualism in this piece, you know, goes hand in hand with the existentialism, to be or not to be. And so I knew the ghost element was something I really wanted to take pretty seriously because I also think it's how we start the play. Traditionally, it's three people in a watchtower and something is rotten in the state of Denmark. A ghost appears, and and that's how the play begins. And sometimes it's cut and rearranged, but in Shakespeare's writing, that's how it starts. So I then thought, well, we've lived through so much this past 16, 17 months. I didn't want to hide from that. And, you know, people were saying, oh, well, we loved the humans. We loved Billy Elliot. We loved The Wizard of Oz. Aren't you just going to push them? And I still would love to do those works. But they just didn't feel right for the time right now, for our community right now, and for the programming right now. And so it just organically came as that invisible hand that sometimes guides me towards making these decisions. And, you know, in dedication to all of those that we've lost from COVID, as well as the other many things that have been going on this year, we've themed this season Ghosts, which is very prevalent in Hamlet. And so from there, we then sort of started to think, okay, well, what else fits? And even though it's not exactly a ghost, we did do Richard two years prior, so we couldn't bring that back. But we did think 10 years is a bit of a hallmark. And as you may be aware, the public theater in New York, who does Shakespeare in the Park, that we've modeled a bit of our programming off of, they tend to repeat shows, and they do two this summer. And I mean, I think they've done too much ados in the past four years. So we thought, okay, we finally might be able to repeat a work, and I think in celebration because we weren't able to plan our 10-year gala that we were very much looking forward to. We're postponing that slightly, but I did want to celebrate the time, and especially with this 10-year mark. So we decided to pay tribute to where this all began with our inaugural production of A Midsummer Night's Dream because there's some heavy stuff this season and we needed something with levity, even though there's quite a bit of seriousness in that play as well. But we wanted something that would celebrate the inauguration of this as we also celebrate this first decade. So those are our two bookends and how we found those two works. And they line up just, they're really strong and we're really happy with those. Um, As for the musicals, so we knew Ghosts, one of the first personal connections of someone who passed on from complications of COVID was the playwright, uh, multiple Tony winning, Pulitzer winning playwright Terrence McNally which like many artists in the performing arts, I had the pleasure of working with for a little bit on It's Only a Play a few years back. And that one hit really hard uh, just because, you know, he has such a huge network of people's lives. He's changed careers. He's helped and just beautiful opening night letters that he's written. And it was so kind of devastating because so many of these actors, you know, when they do pass on, they're celebrated with these beautiful memorials or special moments at the Tony Awards and that wasn't able just given timing to really happen for him and I also 
when I was I was working on a, telling a play for our third season, I just can recall him being very interested. And he he said many things about Shakespeare, including, you know, made pretty convincing uh, <laughs> assumptions of his sexuality and uh, also just said it was his first teacher. So he always had a real interest in that. So I could always remember him sitting on the couch backstage being like, what are you doing this summer? He was always very keen to that. So I knew I wanted to do one of his works and I've always wanted to do one of his works. But I was also thinking, you know, it's not just COVID that we're dealing with during this time. We're also exposed to immense systemic racism and social injustice. So, okay, so where does this take me? And then it just sort of like hit me in the face. He wrote the book to one of the, in my opinion, best musicals ever made, uh, Ragtime, that was based on the E.L. Doctorow novel by the same name. And it's uh, been a real amazing experience working on this show the past two weeks, but also just listening to it, casting it, and it's a huge endeavor. It's very ambitious of us. It, it, it's never toured in this area. It's never been done professionally in this area. I know two colleges have taken a, an admirable whack at it since it opened, I think, in 96. But I'm really excited that we are going to be the professional premiere of this work in this area. And there's so much that feels incredibly relevant from the story of the immigrant, from the story of the African-American community facing, you know, systemic racism and social injustice, but also to us sort of figuring out how to assimilate. And I mean, it's just all there. Guns are going off everywhere. Harry Houdini is one of the main characters, which come on, he played Scranton, Houdini Museum, shout out. So there was just so much richness in this show. And also it's just so vaudevillian. It's set in 1902, but it's got some fun vaudeville numbers, which as we've discussed in the past is such a a vein of Scranton's heritage and when its economy was thriving the most. So it felt like a no-brainer, and I, I couldn't believe it took more time to sail into my consciousness, but I'm really ecstatic about this production. So the, now we've got our two Shakespeare's and we have Ragtime. So now it becomes, what's the other musical that can fit in to this puzzle? And I really, I have to admit, I have a pretty expansive, you know, knowledge of, of, musical theater and I had to google you know musicals with ghosts and carousel came up and I thought oh okay well I don't know if I'm ready to tackle some of the problems in that play just yet although I love the music and then Les Mis came up can't get the rights to Les Mis and then Into the Woods showed up and I love the show Into the Woods I I did it in college it made me fall in love with Sondheim and I can remember going to see Company on Broadway, the closing performance, and Raul Esparza was making the curtain call speech and just said that he believes Sondheim is the Shakespeare of our time. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but I guess I, I can't see why it doesn't line up. He's got an insane use of rhythm. He has a beautiful use of language, and, and his lyrics are fantastic. And um, he really hits chords emotionally, that I think a lot of times darker psychological points that sometimes don't necessarily sell for a commercial musical theater audience. And the themes in this play, there was a Sondheim virtual birthday celebration. And I think Mandy Patinkin sang No One Is Alone from the show. And <laughs> I'm, about, I'm tearing up talking about it to you right now because there are just so many themes about us processing our grief and also just the main theme of into the woods you know we've 
we've endured giants, we've endured witches, and we have to take that knowledge and those experiences and venture back and continue on. And so, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it just was incredibly relevant and accurate. And I, again, I couldn't believe it took me this long to uh, come to that title, but I'm really grateful for it. And I, th- I think those four works gorgeously are just, they're one hit after the other. And uh, there's not a weak spot. So it's it's ambitious. It's a big undertaking. But I really think it's it's healthy medicine. We, we kind of need it to just process a bit of everything we've just gone through. And I'm so excited. It's funny because, you know, I can't remember how old I am when people ask me. I was literally in a fight with somebody. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm this age. And they were like, no, you're not. You're this age. So I had to literally do the math. And sure enough, I was wrong. And I thought to myself, I can't remember how old I am, but I basically quantify the last 10 years of my life by what season we were in. And that's very interesting because this season, especially, I mean, every year we've we've tackled beautiful topics and we've worked with different artists. But this season, especially, I think is a beautiful kickoff to a new decade of work, hopefully, and, and is really, I think, a gorgeous graduation and celebration of what we've all gone through. And I'm really enthusiastic and emboldened by it in a way that I haven't been before. And he will on the wheels of a Michael Bradshaw Flynn, founding artistic director of the Scranton Shakespeare Festival, speaking about the 10th anniversary season with the theme of ghosts. Ragtime opens June 30th, a Midsummer Night's Dream, July 9th, Into the Woods, July 15th, Hamlet, July 23rd, and a new play, Conversion Rate, July 28th. There's a rep weekend and also Peter and the Star Catcher performed by young folks at the beginning of August. Wheels of a Dream from Ragtime the Musical, and that an offer of hope beyond that road, beyond this lifetime, that car full of hope will always gleam with the promise of happiness, and the freedom we'll live to know will travel with heads held high just as far as our hearts can go, and we will ride, each child will ride on the wheels of a dream. Music that we'll hear as part of the 10th anniversary season of the Scranton Shakespeare Festival, the 2021 outdoor season at the Iron Furnaces in downtown Scranton. And Ragtime will open the whole festival on June 30th and run through July 3rd. Performances at 7.30 each evening. And for the entire schedule, all the listings and anything you'd need, It's scrantonshakes.com, scrantonshakes.com.